Hello and welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. It's a podcast. I mean, that's a podcast that's getting worse than already. Yeah, that's what philosophy is. It's coming up as a new concept, and we're doing that as well. And of course, this podcast references Berlusconi, in case you hadn't had a realise. So we go with this important character in contemporary politics and So this is episode four, and I'm George Hall, so I'm on Twitter at Polwek with a Q, and with me today are... I'm Alex, uh, I'm, I'm phoning in live, I'm phoning this in live from Sao Paulo, and I tweet at Alex double underscore 1789. And I'm Philip, I'm in England, and I tweet at the Philippics. You're in England, more specifically in Canterbury, don't be ashamed of it. <laughs> And I'm in, I'm in London. Thanks, George. For, Thanks for so that, much for, what it's worth. for reminding me. Um, so today we're going to be discussing um, something that's been in the news a lot this week, uh, specifically corruption. So we've seen Trump firing Comey. We've seen uh, Tory election fraud, or maybe not. We've seen FIFA, uh, the World Football Organization, um, <laughs> firing a team of people looking into its ethics violations. So people have been talking about corruption, and we're going to specifically be talking about corruption and Brazil. But before we get on to that... Phil, what have you been thinking about this week? Um, I've been thinking about whether or not the European Union is like the Soviet Union. I was thinking about this um, generally because uh, I was talking some time ago to an old um, an old uh, Trotskyist, and he was saying, like back in the eighties, like even though they all hated the Soviet Union, those on the anti-Soviet left of British politics it was still inconceivable to them that it might just so swiftly crumble away. And it was um, recalling that conversation that made me think a little bit about the European Union, that I think even among its opponents and supporters, there is, much like the Soviet Union, there is this default shared assumption that it will somehow continue. Um, And I think it's probably worth... It's probably, I mean, I don't think it will continue. And so it's worth thinking about that um, kind of putting that possibility of disintegration into people's conscious awareness in advance in a way that they clearly weren't prepared for with the crumble of the, um, with the crumbling of the Soviet Union. So I've been thinking a bit about that. And there was one thing I read about it in the American Conservative magazine, I think it's called, one of these um, kind of interesting... American. Like sort of paleocons, right? Yeah, I think something like that. Kind of more very, I think, kind of thoughtful, um, intriguing American conservatives, and they bow tie wearing. They, yeah, maybe bow tie wearing. I thought that's a bit um, more Montpellier society types, isn't it? Like, I don't know if the the paleocons are so. No, so they all wear bow ties. It's a good look. Yeah. It's an interesting. I mean, bow ties are a terrible look. Like in the. Um, <laughs> But bow ties and corduroy trousers and that kind of um, Princeton Princeton elite air. Anyway, whatever. The article was a good one, and it made the case. It made the point that the USSR crumbled um, when its dysfunction met its kind of institutional rigidity and dysfunction met the attempt to politically reform it. And so it said that that might be the thing to look out for with the European Union that it could uh, crumble as the result of an attempt to politically reform it. So I guess then is the um, the follow-on thought was whether Macron is going to be Gorbachev, because 
he's at least making these gestures about um, trying to centralize the EU more, putting forward a banking union. He's going to meet Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, as part of these efforts to consolidate the EU. Alex. Uh, we're kind of unused to major structural changes that happen that fast. Uh, and even for, especially for those of us who kind of made the argument for, for Brexit or for the fact that the EU can't continue, I don't know if think, imagine it kind of falling apart in the space of two years. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm talking about a 10 year horizon or something where it, where it falls apart or even longer. This is, this is the first, first step towards uh, over, overcoming Tina. There is an alternative in this space is what are the potential mechanisms that it could fall apart through. But Alex, what about you? What have you been, what's been grinding your gears? Um, corruption, man. I'm sick of it. It's everywhere. No, I don't know. I mean, I think <laughs> Ian Bremmer tweeted this. It was like a quote from a Trump interview with The Economist where he claims to have invented the term priming the pump. <laughs> like, and someone goes, and the, the, the Economist journalist goes, yeah, that's very Keynesian. And then he goes on and explains, he goes, yeah, have you heard this expression before for this particular type of event? Priming the pump? Yeah, have you heard it? Yes. Have you heard that expression before? Because, I mean, I, I just heard it and I think I made it up. <laughs> it's like brilliant. And you think, I wonder whether Trump thinks he actually made it up, but like just use it i don't know like in a in a sexual context you know he couldn't couldn't get it up and he's like oh i'm priming the pump and then like he gets a laugh out of it for whoever he paid uh to have sex with him from you know it just so you think he's say, using it to refer to a fluffer and, be, and not that's it he's talking about a fluffer and he's like oh i could use this for the economy <laughs> a bit of a bit of like state spending to get things going well you can take this further then why like why talk about pump priming and instead talk about fluffing like instead of like talking about keynesian economic policies like that just talk about it as fluffing so one thing which I think we've all noticed this this week is the rise or the the rebirth of um, what you could call horseshoe theories of politics. So these are this is the, the the tired, trite old idea that the far left and the far right, rather than being completely opposed, are act, actually have more in common with each other. And it's in fact, of course, then the centre, which is where all the reasonable um, interesting, uh, important people hang out in, in, in their thought world. And I think this is, it has a particular resonance for me, um, studying politics and history in British schools, where there's essentially two questions that are posed to you. The first is, who was the best king or queen in history? The second, who was worse, Stalin or Hitler? And they're basically the same, but one of them killed more people. And you just do history at GCSE to find out who killed more. And then that's the, the person who's worst. Um, so, Phil, what why do why do liberals love this way of, of thinking about politics quite so much? Because it seems to be everywhere at the moment. It's a way of validating the centre by default, right? Um, and the idea that the two extremes meet, that they're actually the same um, placing. You don't need to justify the, um, there is no requirement to justify the wisdom of the centre because the extremes are in fact offering the same thing. So they're not actually offering an alternative at all. It goes back to what we were talking about before. Um, it's another way of saying there is no alternative. Um, so, I mean, it's uh, it's something which is, it's one way of conceptualizing political space. I mean, yeah, and I, I don't mean, think... If, if, you listen, if you read what the actual accusations are when people kind of do the horseshoe 
horse, horseshit, horseshit theory. We'll call it that. The, the horseshit theory thing. Like, just so like Sonny Hundal, for example, um, this week going, the radical left hatred of the moderate left for not being pure enough is now simply feeding and helping the far right. So the accusation there is of purism, that somehow like the left in pursuing its aims, uh, independent from centrist liberalism, are uh, sort of abandoning the cause. But that assumes that they have a shared cause. Like, if anything, you could say that the problem of the left over the past 20 years is that it hasn't had, is it hasn't really had any independent claims outside of liberalism, that it's just basically, it just tags along with liberalism. And so why all these liberals are going insane over this is that there's now a couple of indications that the left in an organized form as parties and so on aren't going to toe the line set by neoliberal centrism. And that's what, like, they make makes them go fucking insane, right? Um, so they can accuse yeah. them of purism, but it's not purism. It's like, no, just we just have actually different aims, different objectives, different ways of working to what has been the, the sort of hegemonic politics over the past 20 years. I think it's a good point because the um, – and the, it's something – so, I mean, the horseshoe idea has been around for a long time as a way of visualizing what political space looks like. But I think um, Alex is right to say that the – what has made what's interesting at the moment is this kind of um, divergence between the liberal centre and the um, left, effectively. So I don't know, I mean that it's organised particularly because I think leftist populism is a symptom of political disorganisation. It exists because of political disorganisation. But the idea, what's um, what we're seeing and what's making so many liberal commentators, particularly with regards to the French election so um, outraged and frustrated by the French presidential candidate, the leftist French presidential candidate, Mélenchon, when he said that they weren't going to, he wasn't going to guarantee that his voters would support the centrist candidate in the second round of the poll. Um, and what was interesting about that is, like you say, that they're not towing the line anymore. And that kind of um, pulling apart of what has been a de facto um, alliance, I guess, is a new development, which means the horseshoe theory is back, I guess, yeah, in no, a way I mean, that it wasn't really before. That's right. I think that the French example is a great one because it, it's pretty crystal clear what's happened there. Um, and you had a lot of commentators, and not just in France, probably a lot of Anglo commentators coming piling in uh, and accusing Mélenchon of some sort of treachery, effectively. The funny thing yeah. is that as it panned out, most of Mélenchon's voters either abstained or voted for Macron. They didn't vote for Le Pen. Like it's a really small percentage of Mélenchon voters who switched to the far right. And in fact, loads of Fillon voters, that is the, the kind of traditional Gaullist center-right, they all went in quite large numbers to support Le Pen or abstained. So, you know, the kind of the – it almost reaffirms – the integrity of the traditional left-right political spectrum that, you know, the center-right is closer to the far-right than the far-left is, you know. And so there's no horseshoe. It's just it's just a straight fucking line. Yeah, I think it's often used, yeah, it's, it's often used as a as a, as a way that's, that centrists can be like, oh, you have to support us against the against the far-right, although you are the far-right. Um, and it's, it, it is particularly annoying in those, in those cases. Any, any, any other instances of this which have really because I, well, I this this when i read this it, it really pisses me off because obviously part of the history of of the left is 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 a pretty often violent anti-fascism and that's really important and it's not just the center never gets involved with that anyway in any cases from either of you that have annoyed you 
about this that we haven't talked about. So there's like there's all sorts of mad cases you see cropping up kind of everywhere now. I saw this one thing today, which was the idea that Harvard will host its first ever black only graduation ceremony, in a way trying to draw attention uh, and celebrate um, black African American students who graduated from Harvard, and then it's not this exclusive white space and blah 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 blah. blah. And then you're like, yeah, but this is also liberals reinstating segregation, and that's really bad and something that the far right does. Um, so you could really flip this on, on on the liberals and actually point out that they're that, and particularly kind of a certain strain of postmodern identity politics, which I don't think one can identify as left particularly. Um, that in fact has a lot more in common with the alt right uh, than they care to admit. That's a that's a reflection of this sort of domination, the hegemony of identity politics over any questions of race and gender. So no alternative perspectives, certainly not any universalist perspectives are allowed. So if you're questioning it from the left, that means you're with the right. And it's really weird. It's really pernicious, this horseshoe theory that you end up finding it not just in politics proper, but in all these like bullshit online culturalist debates. No, I think that's a really, a really good point. And you do see the um, critique of identity politics often often the, the, the failure to distinguish between the, a left critique and a right critique very quickly devolves into some pretty um, <laughs> pretty harsh language and pretty a pretty high level of emotional states amongst people who who object to being criticized from the left on the basis I of their mean, identity politics. Bill? I think the French example in the presidential election, the one we've already chatted about, I think is the best one of that so far. Um, I think, I mean, the sense of betrayal is most interesting among liberal commentators. So um, this kind of development of an independent left-wing politics rather than the, it's it's really striking that they seem to expect um, spontaneous subservience and fealty from the left, um, while at the same time not being a, refusing the idea that any kind of leftist politics is viable. Um, so it's a strange contradiction, and I think, again, it's symptomatic of this kind of unhinged irrationality that you've seen in so many liberal commentators in response to the political shocks of the last few years, such as Brexit or um, Hillary's failure to win the US presidential election, or the fact that we had a four-way um, four vote in the first round of the French presidential poll. Yeah, I think there are some, there are some psych it's, it's not often that psychoanalysis adds to uh, analysis of politics. But there are some psychological terms that, that resonate. Uh, betrayal, uh, fealty, and entitlement in some of these analyses. Okay, so I, I, I think we, well, we can, we can always return to the horse, horseshoe or horseshit theory, because I think this is, it seems like there is an, an underlying change here in, in at least some parts of European politics about how we think about contestation and alternatives. To move on to uh, from a delicious appetizer to a hopefully satisfying main course, and I merely, didn't prepare merely that. Merely satisfying, just, not delicious, was, just merely satisfying. Well, ideally both, but that was just off the top of my head. I just thought I, I'm, followed, I think I'm getting hungry. Just I'm followed, followed, followed by a really satisfying shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't really control that for listeners or podcasters, but yeah, I mean, we hope that is going to be the case every time. Um, no, so. To, <laughs> Regular, the podcast encourages regular movement. <laughs> yeah, regularity is important. Um, eat a lot of fibre, people. So to move on to the main point of discussion. What counts political fibre? Communi <laughs> Communism is the real movement, the real bowel movement. 
What counts as political fibre, though? Um, it... This po- this podcast, it, it it it's very fibrous and um, dense, uh, so- solid and dense, and <laughs> and um, but but delicious, Encourage, you know. Encourages regular movement. So we've yeah. got we've got fl- we've got fluffing and political fibre to add to <laughs> the new political lexicon for the new age. So now on to our um, trademark. What the fuck is going on over there? section of the podcast so we'll be um inaugurating this this section by talking about brazil so just a brief bit of context for brazilian politics so it's been a year since the parliamentary coup um the extremely popular former president lula was questioned this week which has led a lot of uh, erudite political analysts to ask what the fuck is going on over there in brazil Phil, uh, you and I are based in, in the UK. Alex is, is over there in Brazil on, on the ground, experiencing things as, as they happen. Um, but you made a, a, a trip to, uh, to Brazil recently. Um, and I guess there's a general question here. You know, what do you think are, what do you think is a necessary context to thinking about Brazilian politics? What, uh, what would be your starting point, perhaps particularly as an outsider to, to all of this? So I was lucky enough to visit Brazil for work a couple of years back now, so it wasn't quite recent. It was before the, though interestingly at the time, people in Brazil were the Brazilian colleagues I was um, working with and talking with. They were very clear that the slide was going to be fairly imminent because the um, backlash of the economic crash, which um, was still um, being felt across the world, um, was yet to really um, hit Brazil in all of its force. So I suppose the thing that was most kind of striking about Brazil from the outside was the boosterism. So the notion that um, there was the famous economist, um, front page of the economist, which showed the famous statue of Christ the Redeemer taking off into the sky. And it was a very famous kind of evocative image of um, Brazil's uh, successful growth rates, which had managed to boost um, a significant section of the um, kind of uh, favela dwelling slum inhabitants into um, boost their consumption and give them greater access to education, to higher living standards, enhanced income and so on. So the boosterism was still very kind of present in outside perceptions of Brazil. And all of that has just been um, completely disintegrated as a result of the political implosion of Brazil's elite um, and also the tremendous economic contraction, um, which is seems to have uh, totally undercut all the preconceptions that so many people had about um, the successful global economy and the, the emerging new international system in which you had other countries in the world being able to successfully compete with the um, with the West, and that just seems to have been wiped out by the, everything that's happened in the last few years. Um, going around Brazil, I mean, the things that I suppose were most striking as an outsider were that it was, in Rio at least, was that it was tremendously, um, it was much more developed than I expected. So I suppose this was coming outside as a, as a Westerner who's never, who's only been briefly to Latin America many years ago, I was struck by how um, how modern it felt and how developed compared to, I suppose, preconceptions of third world slums and what have you. So the extent of the slums um, were striking, but on the other hand, it was still clearly a very modern city that functioned as a modern city. 
So that's what the kind of idiot outsider intellectual who's been to Brazil once and thinks they know everything that's going on there. Um, but Alex, you actually know what you're talking about. What do you think? <laughs> Thanks. It's the first time anyone's ever said that to me. It's really, literally kind. <laughs> um, Only in comparison to Phil. Sorry. Not absolutely. <laughs> I think the important thing to, to understand about Brazil today is uh, the role of protest. Because you had a decade of growth under the Workers' Party from 2003 to 2013. Um, while that was still going on, the tail end of that, you had this huge upsurge of popular protests, which came seemingly out of nowhere in June 2013, which was in Kuwait, very broad-based, and which was at the, be at the beginning more about demanding better public services uh, than it was about corruption. The party which assumed leadership of those protests ended up being the oligarchic, very right-wing media, who channeled it towards corruption rather than demands for public services. Into that context came the kind of delayed economic crisis because Brazil was able to shelter itself quite a while and it only entered the sort of global economic crisis quite late. Um, so then you have this very deep recession and then you have the impact of the anti-corruption investigations which continues the protest wave but in an increasingly conservative form um, targeting the Workers' Party and targeting corruption in a very narrow way. And that's really the, the backdrop to all of this, um, this sort of whirlwind of and concatenation of a, of a political and an economic crisis. Um, they come together and one ends up feeding, it's kind of this positive feedback loop of one feeding into the other. So Alex, this corruption scandal, it's, it's a really massive deal. There's, there's tens of billions of dollars um, at stake here. So isn't it a good thing that this is being investigated? Well, that's the thing. When it initially came out, you think, well, this is kind of good that the law is finally being equally applied to all and that big business, landowners, the political class can't get away with things in the old way. You know, there's kind of an, an end to the old ways of politics. And you go, well, you know, that's that's fair enough. Um, but what's actually happened is a very um, targeted demolition initially of the Workers' Party who were in government, uh, especially through the media. And there's a lot of really problematic aspects the way that this has been carried out things that have effectively undermined the neutrality of the judiciary. And the whole point of this is presumably to affirm the neutrality of the judiciary. So you've had loads of use of pre-trial detention uh, to extract plea bargains uh, from those being investigated. Numerous deliberate leaks to the media, often of private conversations which shouldn't be leaked. And a lot of cheerleading by Sergio Moro, the investigating judge, including speaking directly to the public. Um, so there's a lot of sort of cheerleading, bringing out huge crowds back in 2015 and 2016 uh, to support the anti-corruption crusade and also demand uh, Juma's ouster and the destruction of the PT and a supposed end to all corruption. Um, so just last, just last week, when you've had uh, Lula going in for questioning in the southern city of Curitiba, big protests from both sides. Uh, pro-Lula and pro-Lava Jato, and Moro addressing the crowds of the pro-Lava Jato people, uh, who are mainly of, of the right and tend to be more upper middle class, uh, saying, you don't, you shouldn't come here, you shouldn't make this into a big spectacle. But as soon as he starts addressing a crowd, already it already places him as one of the combatants in the field and not this kind of impartial judge. Um, but what's really fascinating that's happened is that his crusade at the turn of the year suddenly turned into a much more generalized affair. So it implicated one third of Congress, more than half of 
uh, Temer's cabinet. And suddenly the whole political class feels like the noose is tightening around their neck. What's ended up happening is that sections of the old elite have gone, wait, this has gone too far. We were all on board with the anti-corruption stuff before uh, before it, it, it attacked us. Now we're not happy with this. And if I'm going to take a punt on who's going to win between what has emerged as an open confrontation between a, a crusading section of the judiciary and, on the other hand, the legislature, uh, the old elites, um, regional government, regional governors, and their power bases. It's going to be the latter who are going to win out, and so there's going to be a clamp, there's going to be a putting an end to this anti-corruption campaign, uh, which actually is kind of the worst of both worlds in a way, because you think it was problematic that it was partisan uh, in its attacking of the PT at the expense of others, um, but once it became generalized, you say, okay, well maybe at least that. If it's going to be ecumenical and bring everyone down, well, at least that's everyone being brought down and it not being this partisan affair anymore. So, to, just to, just to clarify here, so you said it started as a targeted demolition of the Workers' Party and then broadened out. What? Why did? Why exactly did that? Did that happen? How did that occur? Well, the main thing is that one of the largest companies in Brazil, one of the largest construction companies, which is a contractor for Petrobras, Odebrecht, the leaders of that company were arrested and filed plea bargains. And so they've rolled over on all the whole network, the whole way of that politics operates in Brazil in terms of illegal funding of political parties, backhanders, all sorts of graft, uh, that it's clear that it's very systematic. And so the illusion that it was the PT that created this, this who masterminded this corruption stuff, that they just came into power and because they're statists, this is like the, the idiotic... Uh, Brazilian rights idea that it's statism which creates corruption and that if you just privatize everything there wouldn't be any corruption and so this anti-corruption campaign is helping break uh, this sort of statist enterprise led by PT um, and it's I mean that's completely fanciful like it there was a, a, pre, a this famous PowerPoint presentation which went viral at the end of last year where the Lava Jato investigators presented uh, this idea that Lula was at the center of masterminding corruption in Brazil, basically. That that this didn't exist before him, that it's a concoction of the Workers' Party. And if you can imagine a more shoddy PowerPoint presentation, this is like the this is like all the kids at school work hard on their projects over a month and come out with something, you know, of varying quality, but it looks decent. And then Lisa Simpson, uh, dressed as Florida, shows up. This, <laughs> that's that's what this that's what this presentation is. It's like all these arrows pointing at Lula in the middle of the page, going, he's done everything. It's him. It's they should have just put up a big fucking sign saying, it's him. Um, but what's, what Lava Jato has actually revealed, which is quite useful, is how systematic this is. This is a way of doing politics, and that the cost of doing politics in Brazil uh, since the return to democracy is the intermeshing of private interests with, with the public realm. That's how things work, and that's not going to change uh, just off the back of a single judicial, a single judicial investigation. So, so was it a case that, um, of, you know, everybody's doing it and everybody knows that everybody's doing it? Or was it more of a, a kind of a big reveal, like, in fact, everybody in the political class is entirely corrupt? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody, you know, when something's revealed and you kind of always suspected it, but when you actually have proof of it, it kind of changes the nature of it. Um, and that's a bit what happened here. And what, what it's led to is a complete lack of trust in politics and the political class as a whole. Um, it's, it really is devastating. We're living through a very strong anti-political moment in Brazil. Um, at a point, and, and 
the contrast to the 2000s is stark because that was a period of growing demobilization of the populace because the economy was growing, a whole swathe of the population were lifted out of poverty and another swathe uh, finally had access to consumer goods, which they never did. It's kind of the growth of the new middle class. And so it was kind of happy but passive times. Um, and all this kind of exploded. Actually, it exploded before the anti-corruption investigations with the huge June 2013 protests. But the anti-corruption investigations um, kind of took the lid off the thing uh, in demonstrating the whole political class not just to be ineffective, say they're not, they're, you know, they say they provide public services, but the services are shoddy. We know they kind of steal a little bit, but actually saying no, this is a systematic, um, a systematic enterprise of corruption uh, at the highest levels. Interesting. We've got the media, we've got the judiciary, we've got uh, various political forces. Phil, what what strikes you from from the way that this has has developed? Um, I think it's extraordinary, and I think it's something the extent of what's happened in brazil isn't really something which has been properly absorbed into um anglo-american commentary i guess because the anglo-american world has been so absorbed with its own political shocks over the last few years uh, so it's not really grasped the full-scale disintegration that's happened among brazil's political elite and the fact obviously that there was so much brazil boosterism in the west until recently um, so that you have this, um, so that you have a fantastically, um, what well, seems to me anyway, a fantastically venal elite that has used every um, essentially appointed or non-elected organ of the state to sabotage a democratically elected government that they weren't able to get rid of in the ballot box. Um, and that it's just turned into this roiling, um, this roiling kind of uh, cauldron of um, chaos and confusion, and it's extremely difficult to to get a sense of it from the outside um, unless you have some kind of sense of Brazilian politics. So, Phil, are you are you are you surprised that this corruption investigation is politically motivated? Yes, it's a shock. It really is like an astounding shock that the Brazilian elite would um, use uh, the appointed arms of government to uh, defeat their political rivals and to subvert the democratic process through um, through effectively non-democratic, non-electoral means. It is an astounding indictment of um, of how unexpected and disappointed disappointing our leaders are even though they're not our leaders i think you have to lay the irony on a little bit thicker there <laughs> were you saying what you meant or what you didn't mean it wasn't clear um no but um, what phil just so what, said what, is what? untrue to everybody listening what phil just said there the opposite of that if you replay it back in your head then that's the truth got it <laughs> so just imagine him saying not at the end of what he said <laughs> Cool, got it. Um, so, Phil, what what stands out for you um, in this kind of recent developments in Brazilian politics, and maybe how they've been understood um, by Anglo-American commentators? Um, they've not really been tackled by Anglo-American commentators. I guess what stands out is its chaotic confusion and the difficulty of seeing what the ultimate outcome will be. Um, so, the the example that everyone goes to is the Italian Second Republic which is a so-called Second Republic, which is what emerged from the 
storm of corruption scandals which brought Berlusconi to power at the beginning of the, um, well, sorry, at the end of the Cold War. So early 90s, 1994, there was the kind of the wave of Italian corruption scandals, um, which eventually ended up with this kind of um, extraordinary political figure in um, Berlusconi that combined elements of um, CEO managerialism and technocracy with this um, populist flair. And who knows? I mean, who knows what will come out of Brazil? Um, I guess the thing that strikes me the most is, and this is the kind of thing I want to put to Alex, is whether or not coup is the right way to label it. Because I think it's an important, because so it's, um, the stakes are obviously tremendously high in talking and using the language of coup. Um, But if there aren't people with guns and fatigues on the street, and if, as all the polls suggest, that Lula would comfortably win, in the next um, Brazilian general election, whenever that happens, then given the fact that the that the political leaders of the opposition aren't in um, aren't in jail, um, or well, they are, haven't been imprisoned by the military at least, um, should we should we be so ready to use the word coup to describe what's going on? Well, I think that's a good question because, as you say, there's no there's no tanks rolling in across the streets. So, what you could say is that the impeachment by itself is just a bit of court intrigue, that one segment of the political class turned against another segment, and uh, there was a change of hands in power, and that's the end of that. I think what makes it a coup is that you have to articulate together all the different elements which led up to this. So this is primarily the media campaign against the Workers' Party, the anti-corruption hysteria, the, the fact that the impeachment was completely illegitimate by the admission of its own uh, beneficiaries. So President Temer said before the impeachment, before the impeachment proceedings had really got on, got underway, that it, an impeachment would be completely illegitimate. Subsequent to it and subsequent to taking power, uh, Temer said things like the impeachment was done because Juma would not sign up to his bridge to the future plan, which is the sort of neoliberal agenda that's being implemented now with a huge rollback of social and labor rights. And then he also said that the impeachment happened because he failed to protect one of his allies in Congress from prosecution um, and that the impeachment was revenge for that. Um, So by the admission of its own beneficiaries, the impeachment was completely illegitimate. Um, And then I think if you add into this whole mix the fact that there's been this huge rollback of rights, uh, then that starts to look like the claiming of power by a segment of Brazilian capital uh, to follow through its interests. That isn't to say that the Workers' Party was this sort of left-wing regime which capital couldn't tolerate anymore. That isn't true. They were they ran, they ran, governed the country from the center, from the center-left, kept in, in place many of the macroeconomic policies of the kind of centrist, center-right predecessor. Uh, so it isn't the kind of Cold War model of a, of a kind of, uh, you know, left nationalist or communist regime coming in and needing to be deposed uh, because imperialism can't stand for it. It's not that. It's more the fact what makes it a parliamentary coup is the fact that there's been a, a complete change of of tack in terms of uh, in terms of governing um, that the interim government has done. So, Alex, just one final question before we open this up to, to you know to, to to a bit of a wider discussion. So, you've you've been living in in Sao Paulo. What have been the consequences in terms of you know just like basically being there, being involved in political discussions? seeing the sort of protests and, and various events that have been going on in the past couple of years? 
So Sao Paulo is Brazil's largest city and one of the largest cities in the world. And it's actually over the past couple of years emerged as the epicenter of protest. What you had over 2015, 2016, was that the right owned the streets. There were massive protests all dressed in the national colors, uh, being against all political parties, railing against corruption. And since around the end of 2016, after uh, Juma's impeachment, you've had the left sort of reawakening um, in the name of democracy. But what's really spurred on protests, especially at the beginning of this year, uh, there was a very large protest in Sao Paulo as of, uh, at the end of March, which is the, the reforms to pensions, the liberalization of labor rights. The left has, to an extent, reawoken, but this is in a context in which there's a very little trust in political parties of any stripe. So those who will look to profit in this current context isn't um, the Workers' Party, certainly not, um, nor any party for that matter, but kind of savior figures of various sorts. And so what you've got today in Brazil is you've got Lula, the one slogan um, of su the supporters of Lula bring out sometimes is that Lula the thief, he stole my heart. Um, and it's this sort of idea that, you know, if they've all got their hands in the till, well, you might as well vote for someone uh, who's one of us. You know, he may be a bastard, but he's our bastard. Um, other savior figures that have emerged are Sao Paulo's newly elected mayor, who is really a typical Berlusconi figure. He claims he's a manager, not a politician. Um, he's the type of guy who just gets the job done. He's also the star of the celebrity, the host of Celebrity Apprentice in Brazil, um, which might ring <laughs> some alarm bells um, for many people. Um, and so you can see that he's this sort of anti-political, tries to run as this anti-political figure, but who's has a very mediatized image, and he's effectively a marketeer. Um, so he's a he's a typical Berlusconi. And then you've got on the far right um, Jair Bolsonaro, who's a deputy uh, deputy in Congress, and who's possibly one of the most reactionary elected officials in the entire world. Um, he made a name for himself, like in the global media, when. It came to voting in Congress to vote for Juma's impeachment. He dedicated his vote to impeach her to the army general who was personally responsible for torturing Juma during the dictatorship. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and he's risen in the polls and actually has quite um, strong support amongst the highest uh, earning quintile in Brazil. Um, so that's a kind of worrying development. Um, thus far, he acts more as a sort of bogeyman for the left than an, uh, an actual prospect. The Brazilian establishment is probably not too keen on him. Um, but they are so lacking credibility at the moment that who knows who they might latch on to as a sort of savior figure. Brilliant. So thanks. Thanks, Alex. That was definitely a, a succulent morsel of, of knowledge for all the listeners. And I'm sure, I'm sure we can link to your Jacobin article, which is, which is excellent. Not just saying that because I'm talking directly to you um, <laughs> on on all of this. Any final thoughts to leave us with, Phil? I'll turn to you first. I guess. I mean, the real question is how. I what I would think about is how significant the long term gains of that Brazil has made um, in the last twenty years or so since the end of the Cold War. How enduring they'll be in terms of people's expectations. If you've had a significant proportion of the population lifted out of poverty as a result of economic growth, and now they see those gains being eroded, um, and they see that they have absolutely no um, meaningful or organized political leadership, and they see such a tremendously venal and self-serving um, and self-destructive political elite, then 
where do people go um, as a result of that? I guess that would be the question that would be interesting and important for everyone who's interested in Brazil, but also just interested in the world at large. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's I think there's a specific thing which I would draw attention to in terms of corruption, Brazil's experience with anti-corruption politics, which applies globally, especially in this sort of populist moment, which is a fairly basic point that when people talk about corruption, most of the time they're talking about something else. And corruption is the way, is a language through which to express other grievances. And these can come from the right, they can come from the left, they can come from the elite, they can come from the bottom of society. And I think being aware of that and trying to unpick what people actually mean by when they talk about corruption is the important, is the crucial starting point. Thanks, thanks guys. I thought that was, that was a fantastic discussion. So listeners, join us next week when we will be talking about fully automated luxury podcasting.